So one of the questions in the countdown was, what was the best gift you've ever received? Did you get a chance to share with your neighbor? What was the best gift you've ever received? Um, you have a little bit more time to think about it because that is, I think, one of the questions in the discussions. And so uh, be ready to share. For myself, one of the best gifts I've ever received was when I was 10 years old. And our parents, uh, our family, I should say, had just moved from the east coast, sorry, west coast of the U.S., California, to the east coast. We moved to Pennsylvania. And because it was such a big move, um, it had cost a lot of money, and you know, I knew my parents had a lot of bills to pay. And so I was thinking, even though it was Christmas, I wasn't expecting a lot, and that was all right, and I went to bed. Christmas morning came around, and you know, my sister and I got up, and we went to the living room, and there were two big boxes. And I was 10, so you know, I was probably like that short, and the boxes were almost as big as I was. There was a pink one and a green one. The pink one was mine. And I, you know, I had my name on it. I ran over and I opened it. And inside the box were clothes. There were books. I loved books because I was totally a nerd. Uh, there were toys. There were school supplies. It was a whole box of just new, exciting uh, things for a 10-year-old. And even though I've received many wonderful Christmas presents since then, that memory always stuck with me because I knew it was such an unexpected surprise. And I knew what a sacrifice my parents had made to make that possible for us because I knew that the finances were tight. And it was such a, um, I remember feeling so grateful to my parents and being so excited and being able to really tell how much they cared from the thought that went into that box. Have you ever received a gift like that? a gift where you know there's been considerable effort and thought. And maybe it wasn't expensive in terms of price, but you could just tell there was a lot of care packed into that gift. Jesus received a gift like that a week before his death. For three and a half years, he had been teaching, he had been preaching, he had been healing the blind, the lame, the sick. He had even resurrected the dead. And now he was about to go away, and he had told his friends and disciples, very shortly, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to die. And he told them this so that they wouldn't be so disappointed, so they wouldn't be so devastated when it happened. But as it was, no one wanted to believe him. They were in denial. What are you talking about, Jesus? Why would anybody want to kill you? You're at the height of your uh, popularity. Everything is going so well. And so no one really took him seriously except one person. There were so many people around Jesus who were grateful to him. If you imagine, you know, being blind and he opened your eyes, wouldn't you feel grateful? And there was a man named Simon who was a leper, and Jesus healed him of his leprosy. So out of gratitude to Jesus, he invited a lot of people over and threw a party. He had a feast. And so there, Jesus came with his disciples, and you can imagine all 12 men, you know, and Jesus trudging into this house, hungry, right? And so they all sit down, and it was customary for that time, uh, for when the guests arrived in a home, for the host to provide servants. Um, and if there were no servants available, then for the host himself or herself to uh, arrange for the feet of the guests to be washed. But to their embarrassment... No one washed their feet. 
And as disciples are kind of jabbing each other, and they're like, you do it, no, you do it. No, I can't do it, you do it, right? You're younger than I am. So as they're kind of awkwardly jabbing each other and kind of hoping somebody will come along, a woman slips into the crowd. And at first, nobody notices her. She walks quietly over to Jesus with a white, translucent bottle in her hand made of alabaster. And she breaks it. And immediately, the smell from the spikenard that's inside that bottle starts to permeate the corners of the room. And she takes this bottle, and she breaks it, and the oil flows over the head of Jesus. And it was so much oil that it flows down from his head all the way down to his toes. And as people are sniffing, what is that smell? Where is that coming from? And they start turning one by one and noticing her, and they see her at the feet of Jesus, weeping and wiping his feet with her hair. Now, people had several reactions. One reaction was, how could Jesus allow this woman to touch him? It was a very shameful thing for a woman to let down her hair um, in public. At that time, only um, prostitutes would have their hair uncovered, and it was one of the signs that you knew that she was a prostitute. And so normally, women would have their hair covered. But here, in public, this woman uncovered her hair and was wiping Jesus' feet with them. They were shocked, and they thought to themselves, how could Jesus allow such inappropriate behavior? Didn't he know who she was? You see, this woman wasn't just any woman. This woman um, had a reputation. She, has a rep- she had a reputation for being someone who was sinful or shameful, someone that you didn't want to associate or even invite to a place like that. And here she was, not only did she sneak in, but there she is rubbing and wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair. The crowd was disgusted. And they said to themselves, if Jesus truly is who he says he is, then surely he would know what kind of woman she is. The other question that they had was, why would you waste so much oil? In the story, it says that the oil that she had in that bottle that she had just poured all over Jesus was 300 denarii's worth. Now, one denarii was one day's wages. So 300 denarii is almost one year's wages. So in Australian standards, it's about $60,000. $60,000 worth of oil poured out in one moment. And they said, why this waste? In fact, their words went something like this. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to, to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. But even though John, who's writing this, tells us what was in the mind of Judas, the words that Judas spoke, what a waste. We could have used this to feed the poor, right? That dissension quickly spreads, and this is what we read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 8. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at high price and the money given to the poor. It's amazing how one seed of dissatisfaction can quickly 
you know, spread. So now everybody is criticizing Jesus and this woman for allowing this great waste, right? Think about all the good things we could have done with this oil and this perfume, but instead it's been wasted in this one moment. That's what the crowd was concerned about. They didn't ask, why is this woman here? They didn't ask, why did she do this? Instead, they quickly jumped to just criticizing her. But Jesus defends her right away. This is what he says. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You see, even though the disciples turned a deaf ear to the fact that Jesus was about to die, she, even though she didn't fully understand it, thought to herself, if Jesus is going away, then I want to do something truly special for him. Can you imagine if someone you love dearly said that shortly, within six or seven days, you weren't going to see them anymore? What last thing would you do to show that person you truly care about them? And so Mary, you know, hears that Jesus is going to die. And it was the custom of that time that when someone died, usually after they died, the, the body would be, uh, would be treated with, with oil and perfumes and fragrances. Um, they would, you know, wrap the body and then they would bury the body, which later happened when Jesus died. But Mary thought to herself, well, I want to show Jesus that I care about him. So I'm going to do this for him now, before he dies, so that he knows that I'm so grateful for what he has done. And so even though it was 300 days work worth of oil, for her it was not a waste at all. For her it was um, the best way to express to Jesus how extremely uh, sad she was. And that's why she was weeping and she was wiping um, his feet with her hair. How extremely uh, mournful she was that he was going to be leaving soon. And she wanted to show him how much she loved him. And why did she love him so? Why did she want to express such love with such extravagance, right? When you study the life of this woman, we find out that not only uh, does she appear here, but in the four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, as well as John, that show the, um, the stories of Jesus, they're called the Gospels, we find out bits and pieces about this woman. We find out that this is the same woman who, you know, uh, some time before, had been caught in the very act of adultery. Do you remember that story? And the Jewish leaders drag her out half naked and fling her at the feet of Jesus. In fact, every time we see this woman, she's always at the feet of Jesus. And there she is at the feet of Jesus half naked, and they're about to stone her to death because according to their laws, that's what was supposed to happen. And just as she's on the brink of a violent death, Jesus has stepped in and said, He who has no sin cast the first stone. And one by one, all those who were so eager to stone her to death had to leave because they realized that they too were sinful. And at last, when Jesus stood alone with her, the only person on earth who had no sin and had every right to judge her, said, I don't judge you either, he said. Go in peace and sin no more. Literally, he had saved her life. 
This is also the same woman who later on, he comes to their house, and she has a sister and a brother, and her sister Martha is in the kitchen, busily preparing the meal, as was the custom. And Mary, who was supposed to be also in the kitchen helping out her sister, had dared to sit at the feet of Jesus again. And I love that story because just when Martha comes out in a huff and a puff and she says, Jesus, say something to my sister. She's not helping me and I'm, I'm the one doing all the work in the kitchen. Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. Just focus on one thing. Mary has chosen that one thing. And he invites Martha also to sit at his feet. And that to us might sound like, oh, that's nice. But in that time, for a woman to sit at the feet of a, a rabbi, a teacher, was a big deal because they didn't invite women to be disciples. And so to be able to sit at the feet of Jesus, Jesus was breaking custom and tradition already at that point by saying, I want you to actually come and learn from me. So he had defended her once again, first from death and from those who are quick to judge her, secondly from her own family who are quick to criticize her, also at the feet of Jesus. Later on, we find out that this uh, woman, I said, had a brother also. His name was Lazarus, and he had died from illness. And we see Mary once again at the feet of Jesus, weeping and saying, Lord, if you had been here, been here, my brother would not have died. But then Jesus actually does this amazing miracle of resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. So what do you think? Does she have reason to be grateful? She is so overflow. Her heart is overflowing with love and gratitude for her own life, for her brother's life, for all the things that he has ever done for her. And because not only did he save her literally from death, but because he had constantly over and over again, there's another verse in the Bible that talks about how seven times Mary, uh, Mary of Magdala is her name, she was struggling with something that was personal to her, and seven times Jesus forgave her and empowered her to live a new life. She is just such a recipient of Jesus' forgiveness and grace that for her, giving him this little token, giving giving him this opportunity to just pour out her love and gratitude through the symbol of this oil, for her was not such an extravagant gift after all. Jesus appreciated and understood why she was doing this. When Jesus defended uh, Mary, he, in addition to just defending her, um, he tells a story. And let me put that on the screen for you. I'm piecing together the, different, the same stories told in the different books of the Bible. And this is in Luke chapter 7. Remember Simon, who had invited Jesus to this party in the first place. That's, uh, he was a Pharisee. So when Simon, the Pharisee who had invited him, saw this, that's Mary, you know, wiping Jesus' uh, feet with her hair, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Simon said, tell me, teacher. And Jesus tells a story. He says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, 
I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as a great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, Jesus isn't just the nice neighborhood handyman who you know, uh, mends broken fences and puts in your rubbish pins for you. Jesus wasn't just a nice guy who was going around and healing people and saying things that sounded nice to hear. Jesus was claiming and is God who is able to forgive sins. It was a different level of ministry that he was able to provide than any other prophet ever dared to do. Jesus was in the business of recreating hearts, of forgiving and wiping away all the things in our hearts that keep us from being able to experience the true freedom of living in complete covenant relationship with God himself. Jesus was able to take away all those things, shame, guilt, anxiety, fear, that's in our hearts and minds from the past and the present. And he was able to provide hope for a new life, an eternal life, where no longer do we have to work so hard to focus and try to be good and try to do that, but instead we can relax and enjoy the freedom of forgiveness and grace that Jesus provides. That's what Mary had experienced. And that's exactly what Jesus was there to provide. And there were so few to recognize it. You know, when you think about what Jesus did, and you think about his life, it's a very extravagant, extreme life. Here's what I mean. Jesus could have just come down to earth, died, and gone up to heaven in order to pay for our sins. But instead, he came as a baby, right? Born here on earth and lived 33 and a half years before he died. And even when he was born, he could have been born in a nice, clean, warm, safe environment to a royal family, right? Who would be able to provide him nice, you know, soft baby clothes, you know, all the things that our stable parents are able to provide. But instead, Jesus was born in a dirty, smelly, very unhygienic barn, right? With animals. Um, I don't know if you know, Brahman, but when you're pregnant, you're not, you're not supposed to be around cats, right? Because they carry a lot of germs and disease, um, so can you imagine Jesus, this newborn babe, right? And we see the nativity scene, and it's like this beautiful scene of the animals are in one corner and the, the manger's there with soft hay. No, it was dirty and smelly, and um, I don't even know how she was able to give birth in this environment. That's how Jesus chose to be born. And instead of a wealthy royal family, he was born to a poor carpenter's family. And he could have grown up in a safe, uh, posh neighborhood with private schools. But instead, he grew up in a rough neighborhood, being bullied, 
by people for being born out of wedlock. He could have lived his life in relative ease and prosperity and peace, but instead he lived a life of persecution and poverty. And, you know, he could have died from an illness or maybe in his sleep, or he could have died in some way to pay for our sins uh, that didn't involve such a violent, shameful, grotesque death as the cross. When Jesus died, he died in the worst way possibly known to man at that time. The crucifixion, um, you know, you might have heard this before, but it was a long, torturous death where they were trying to maximize the pain and maximize the time you're in that pain and maximize the shame. Because in that time period, um, to, be half, to be naked, basically, hung for all the public to see, was one of the most shameful things imaginable. So why this extremity? Why go through such a difficult life and such a violent and difficult death? Why did Jesus have to go through all that? And I think that perhaps the answer is Jesus wanted to illustrate his extravagant love, his prodigious giving. There's a quote here from uh, one of the books I really like. It says, Well may the heavenly host, talking about the death of Christ, with amazement look upon the human family who refused to be uplifted and enriched by the boundless love expressed in Christ. Well may they exclaim, Why this great waste? But the atonement for our lost world was to be full, abundant, and complete. Christ's offering was exceedingly abundant to reach every soul that God had created. It could not be restricted so as not to exceed the number who would accept the great gift. All men are not saved. Yet the plan of redemption is not a waste because it does not accomplish all that its liberality has provided for. There must be enough and to spare. In other words, Jesus made sure that his sacrifice, his life, his death, everything that he did was done to this level of extravagance, to a level of extremity, in order to illustrate his prodigious love for us, in order to illustrate how much he wanted to give on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus' body was like an alabaster flask broken for us. And the water and the blood that flowed from him, his body, symbolically, covers us and anoints us from our head down to our toes, cleanses us and makes us whole. There's a, a psalm, Psalm 23, that is well known that starts, the Lord is my shepherd. And in that, in that psalm, it talks about the sheep going through a journey and when sheep get injured, the shepherd would take out some oil and would anoint the, the sheep and that oil will help the sheep heal. And that's why in Psalm 23 it says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over, right? It overflows. It's, he doesn't just dab just a little bit because it's, he thinks it's such a waste to give the sheep the little oil. No, he would generously put it on and it would just overflow so that the sheep would be able to experience full healing. So on the cross when Jesus died, his, his blood symbolically pours out on us and it had to be a violent criminal death. It had to be this extreme love expressed that would flow over us from head to toe and we would drip with the fragrance of forgiveness. You know when Mary anointed Jesus, 
that spike nar, the reason why it was so expensive, right? $60,000 worth. The reason why it was so expensive was because it was very uh, dense perfume. Have you ever had perfume or cologne like that? For Christmas, I wanted to buy uh, Roy. Well, actually, it wasn't really for Christmas. I actually broke one of Roy's cologne bottles in the bathroom while I was cleaning. And it dropped. Um, and of course, the moment it breaks, you know, the smell goes out. So you can't really hide the fact that you broke it. And so then um, Roy's in the other room and he's like, whoa, what, what's going on? And I'm like, yeah, I broke it. And he's like, okay, well, it's not a big deal. But I thought, well, it'd be nice to go replace it for him. So then I went to Chemist Warehouse and um, I went to buy the cologne. And I don't know if it's because I haven't, I'm not used to buying men's cologne. He usually gets his own because um, they last a long time. And so I, I don't think I've bought him one since we got married. And I, you know, go to Chemist Warehouse because I think it's the cheapest there. And... I go to buy it, and it was like $60. And I don't know if that's normal for Australia, but for me, I was like, what, $60, right? And so, you know, I bought it out of love for my husband, um, and I brought it home, and he was like, oh, like, you don't have to do that. And he was like, I was actually kind of thinking of switching over, but now I can't because this bottle, you know, it's, it's quite a big one. It's going to last years, right, because you um, just put a little bit, and it's enough. And so I was like, oh, I can't return it. Too bad. You have to wear this same cologne forever now. But, um, you know, the idea of, 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 of expensive cologne or perfume is that the really good ones, right, not the ones that you spray and it just kind of disappears after a second, but the really good ones, you put a little bit on it and it lasts all day. Well, this spikenard oil that Mary poured on Jesus, $60,000, I mean, can you imagine? That is the, probably the most dense, pure oil possible it would have stayed on him for days. And they didn't bathe back then very regularly, so it would be on his body. And so six days after she poured this, and it went from head to toe, six days later when Jesus was being crucified, I wonder if that smell was still lingering on his body, giving him a little bit of comfort in his distressing moment. That little bit, and who knows, maybe, maybe it was lingering to the point where people were wondering, where is that smell coming from? Why, why does this person smell like that, you know, mingled with all the other smells of, can you imagine, that scene? And it would have made people talk about it. And Jesus had predicted it. Jesus had said, wherever this story is shared, he had said, wherever the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of what I am doing and will do is shared, her story would be shared, he said. That smell would linger and permeate and would represent the smell, the fragrance of grace, of forgiveness, of being made whole, of healing. And so as Jesus' body was broken for us in that moment, even though it was such a painful moment for Jesus, it was, it's actually like perfume for us the fact that his death is able to bring us complete and utter forgiveness, healing, and restoration. And I wonder if we have caught the fragrance of Christ as well. Have we been anointed with the oil of Jesus himself? There's a verse, one of my favorites. Oh, this is what I was talking about. Jesus had said, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Um, this is the verse that I like in Second Corinthians. It says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ 
and though um, through us, rather, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, when we are forgiven by God, when he has anointed our heads with oil, right, with the oil of his forgiveness and the oil of his, um, of his healing, it lingers on us. It lingers on us. And when others are, are around us, when others are interacting with us, they can sense something is different. And they wonder, what is it? What is that fragrance? What is that thing about you that's different? Why is it that you react differently to stress and situations? Why is it that you don't hate your enemies? And then we can share the fragrance of Christ. That because he has forgiven us, that we can forgive others. And that because he has lavished us with his love, that we can show love to others. You know, Christmas is supposed to be a joyful time. Um, the original, I, mean, I was at first going to preach on a sermon called The Twelve Days Before Christmas. But as I was writing the, the sermon, I started to go into a panic attack because I realized how little time I have to write the cards and get the presents and you know, all that figured out. And I thought to myself, Christmas is supposed to be joyful. But I don't know about you, but so oftentimes it becomes this extremely stressful time where you feel this, um, this burden. It's not a desire. It's like a burden that you have this long list of things to get done, this long list of people to write for, you know, and you just think to yourself, oh, I, I wish I had more time, or you think, I wish it was over, or, you know, we, we start dreading Christmas. Um, and we kind of completely forget the point of it. And I really want to challenge all of us, including myself, that for this Christmas, maybe we can, instead of seeing the things we have to do as obligations, instead that we can see them as opportunities to lavish our love on others. And I'm not talking about going out and buying expensive, extravagant gifts worth $60,000 for everyone, but perhaps when we give ourselves extravagantly, Maybe it's of our time. Maybe it's of our effort. Maybe it's of our heart, making ourselves more vulnerable to others, opening ourselves up in an extravagant way that we've never done before in order to show appreciation, in order to spread the fragrance of Christ. And so during this Christmas season, as we are hearing the carols, as we're seeing the Christmas lights, I pray that we would also smell the fragrance of Christ, that we would once again focus on the love and the extravagant gift of Jesus Christ coming to this earth, and that as we contemplate that gift, that he himself would anoint us with his Holy Spirit so that we can show grace, extravagant love, and forgiveness to others this season. And so until the picnic, etc., I might not see you, so have a wonderful Merry Christmas, and um, I pray that the fragrance of Christ would permeate this city.